Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Russia promises more sanctions against the West. The ECB stands pat on interest rates and Hong Kong home prices hit an all-time high in July. In markets, it appears the correction is upon us. Equity markets were sold down from London and Frankfurt to New York and Tokyo. Here's some food for thought. You see the geopolitical risks have increased uh, all over the world. We have the Russian-Ukrainian crisis, Iraq, Gaza, Syria, and Libya. And J.P. Morgan's Andrew Goldberg. Let's be clear. Uh, Russia has demonstrated and, and has a long history of enduring pain. And these are hardy people that, by the way, uh, can do, they can deal with pain much more than, than the U.S. can or than Europe can. So some brief comments there at the outset from ECB chief Mario Draghi. And I mentioned Andrew Goldberg there from J.P. Morgan saying the Russians can suffer a lot more pain than people in the United States and the EU. And what about the effect of the sanctions? If there is no solution, uh, it's very negative for world trade. It's very negative for exporting industries in Europe. And it's, of course, also negative for Russia. There's no winners. All are losers. All losers. Mark Faber of Gloom, Boom and Doom there. That said, he thinks the correction was long overdue. I think that markets were incredibly overbought as of three, four weeks ago. And that this decline is a normal reaction to a very overbought, very optimistic sentiment among investors. So we'll look at that in just a few moments. Our guests this morning include Ben Collette of Sunrise Brokers. Ben will weigh in on the outlook for regional markets and share his insights into the value proposition of Tokyo. We'll also be taking a look at the outlook for the shipping sector with Tim Huxley of Mandarin Shipping, or rather of Wakong Maritime Transport. And for some insight into the coming changes affecting investment-linked assurance schemes, we'll have also on the panel uh, an estate planning expert, Jessica Cutrera of EXS Capital. We'll be also asking her about new tax rules for American citizens living abroad. Let's look at Asian markets here. We do see some downside movement this morning, uh, but maybe not by as much as you might think. Uh, just some small losses in Australia. The ASX 200 down eight points in Seoul. The cost be off five and the Japanese market has been uh, slightly weaker. We'll be speaking with Ben Collette in just a few moments on that. First, let's take a look at some of the top stories. Russia retaliating for Western sanctions against Moscow, and it has hinted at more. Moscow said it was banning imports of a wide range of food and agricultural products from Europe and the United States and Australia. It raises the level of confrontation. Russia has demonstrated and, and has a long history of enduring pain. And these are hardy people that, by the way, uh, can do, they can deal with pain much more than, than the U.S. can or than Europe can. So don't, you know, we have to understand that uh, Vladimir Putin's not going to back down from these kind of things right off the bat. So that's again Andrew Goldberg from J.P. Morgan. The Russian government imposed a one-year ban on imports of beef, pork, poultry, fish, cheese, fruit, vegetables, and dairy products from countries such as Australia, Canada, the European Union, the United States, and Norway. On Wall Street, stocks fell. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell to its lowest level since April. The Ukraine conflict outweighing better-than-expected earnings and also a big drop in jobless claims. Normally, that jobs number would have been very positive.
Hey, this is pretty big news for the markets this morning that are looking for some positive news to trade on. Jobless claims fall by 14,000 to 289,000. Now, this is important because we saw them fall a couple of weeks ago to this level, but that's during the period when auto plants are shut down for retooling. According to the Labor Department, that probably did not have an effect, so this could be a real number. We'll have to see next week, but the immediate reaction in the bond and equity markets, the futures have popped and bond yields have gone up because it's suggests a much stronger labor market than we maybe even thought. And more here from Mike McKee of Bloomberg. The four-week moving average has fallen now to the lowest since February of 2006. So it does appear companies are starting to look to add to their labor force. And certainly uh, they're cutting way back on the number of people they're letting go. Actually, during the market, uh, stocks went down, not up from that news, as he suggested they might. The 10-year note yield, which falls as prices rise, dropped six basis points, down to 2.41%. That's the lowest since June 19th of 2013, when the 10-year hit 2.31%. In the end, the S&P 500 off 0.6% at 1909. The Dow dropped 75 points to 16,368. The S&P 500 is down about 4% since it hit its peak of 1987 on July 24th. Lots more news uh, from the markets and from Europe on the ECB, but I think I need to go now to Ben Collette, head of Japan and Asian equities at Sunrise Brokers. Otherwise, uh, he'll wander off and get a cup of tea or uh, flirt with somebody at the water cooler. Mr. Collette, good morning. Good morning, Brian. How are you? Yeah, good. Good to have you on. It's nice to actually have you on uh, on Money for Nothing. Uh, I've had a good a few glitches in the past. Uh, so all teasing aside, let's, let's get right down to it. Uh, you know, just, just looking at um, this sell-off, which seems to be, you know, coming for a variety of reasons, not least of which um, in the West uh, d- due to the sanctions leveled against Russia and, the, and the, the worry that those sanctions would rebound on the West. But many other people saying it was overvalued anyway and uh, it should be coming down. I note that um, the Nikkei is, is down about 4% for the year. Hong Kong is up about 5%, and the Dow is uh, is just slightly negative. Um, do you look at the big picture like that, or are you more focused on internal issues in Tokyo? Uh, well, first, I think, you know, the biggest driver of the, um, uh, of the Nikkei is, uh, is, is uh, certainly the yen. If we look at the topics, that's more the domestic index. But I think um, from a global investor point of view, or rather what, what actually, the, you know, the larger holders of, of, of Japan and how much percentage... Um, is being held by foreigners. That is a major driver. So in answer to the question, like, it, it kind of depends on where the market is. Right now, there is a lot of foreign ownership in Japan. Um, the main drivers of, uh, of the market last year throughout that rally, I think, were, were foreign buyers and domestic at the same time in anticipation of a reallocation of the, uh, the pension assets into equities. So, yeah, basically it depends. I think it, we're not really dealing with it with a yen-based um, sell-off, I don't think. In fact, the yen is probably quite supportive of, uh, of buying Japan. That's one of the reasons why we like it. But we're seeing at the minute is a macro move, or rather uh, a move in global markets. And then I think whether or not they were, uh, we wouldn't uh, speculate whether they're overvalued or not, because we're not really looking so much at value, more positioning. And undoubtedly, um, you know, the, the market uh, uh, or other investors were long, um, along uh, the S&P. Uh, I think globally speaking, they're probably underway Japan at the minute, so we're more confident to be buying Japan here. 
but um, you know, slowly we're not stepping into this market at the minute. But- well, what about the yen? Uh, it has served as a safe haven in the past. Uh, this trouble in Ukraine hasn't really sparked a big move into safe haven ac- assets, although the 10 years up, gold popped up a little bit. What about the yen? Well, you know, the yen, um, the, the main driver for the yen, as you say, had, had, over the last 20 years has been the fact that it has been a safe haven. Um, Rather, rather ironically, but with the disruption in, in standard monetary um, policy practices at uh, Japan, the shift towards that, or the cooperation with um, um, with Abe and his uh, and his principles, I think means that it's less safe. But on a relative basis, right now, um, I think uh, Japan is probably more likely to um, you know with the weakness in the we're expecting more weakness in the end. I think from a monetary policy point of view, it's still expansionary in Japan, whereas the whereas the delta the direction of the U.S. monetary policy is very uh, contractory. Um, so I, we think it's going to weaken. I, I don't think the issue with the with the Ukraine and, and Russian um, sanctions and countermeasures for us isn't that uh, isn't that significant a deal that it should still impact the markets. It's it's from a from an economic perspective. Yes, um, you know Russia's uh, uh, Russia's particular actions are going to affect some sectors in U.S. and European. Um, uh, you know, agricultural or whatever, but for us, certainly in Asia, I, I don't really see anyone using it as a driver for um, uh, for their larger investment decisions. I'm so used to I'm used to hearing you with a slightly more bearish tone. Uh, it seems like you would buy this dip then uh, in various markets. Well, we are we're, we're pretty constructive. I mean, the thing is, we, you, you don't want to fight the market. I think right now we're being. Um, uh, some of the we're, we're looking at uh, a lot of earnings coming out of Japan. Some are good, some are bad. You know, it, it's pretty mixed across the board. I, I think for us, the kind of names that we like to play, and we're trading on a very short-term basis too, because when the markets are very nervous, you can um, you can increase your returns, but you do have to be nimble. So, generally speaking, you know, we've been bearish on the on, on the S and P for a, not bearish, but we we're expecting a correction in the S and P for a while, and we kept getting it wrong on the way up. Um, so now, you know, we are basically short the, the S&P, so we are um, looking good in this current move, but um, uh, uh, as far as what we're trading in Japan, particularly, we like some of the names, we like the high volatility um, punting names, you know, and the TSC mothers is the kind of stuff that retail are worried about, because that's where fear is really detectable, and I think it's a, you know it's where you can afford to take um, some risk and, and hopefully achieve some decent returns. What's your position on Hong Kong and China now after a pretty strong run of late? Um, I, uh, I'm certainly more, um, uh, um, well, I, I think, uh, I think we've got more downside in, in Hong Kong. I think, um, if you look at the HSCI, we haven't really come off as much as perhaps, um, we should do given the moves in the U.S. and the, and the general sentiment. Um, the support yesterday was, was, was pretty encouraging, but I, I think, um, the, the question really is how short is the market, uh, in, in Hong Kong? And I have to say, I don't think, um, I don't think um, the market is that short, and that means there's not going to be a lot of support on the way down. So I'm expecting this to continue. I'm expecting Hong Kong to weaken, uh, weaken a bit, as you, as you pointed out earlier. We've seen we've seen a pretty big sell-off in the last t- couple of days on the Macau gaming stocks, which is kind uh, yeah. of high beta. Would you would you um, short them, or would you buy them on this uh, pretty big sell-off? Definitely don't short them down here. We were buying yesterday. Um, we like them. Um, I think, uh, you know, we bought pretty early, as a few people did, and they got uh, a little bit bored and nervous towards the end of the day. Um, I don't really see, has anything fundamentally changed in the outlook for, for Macau, um, for these particular names over the last two days, not for us. 
Um, this was a huge volume move, and again, it looked like a lot of panic. Um, there's a lot of delta positioning too, which which we were hoping for more support. But I think um, uh, no, I think this is really just uh, closing out um, of uh, of longs that uh, people got into yesterday. I mean, we saw what nearly three times daily volume in Galaxy yesterday. Mm. Um, and a big move for us. That is one of the things we look at for um, for signs of a, of a short-term bottom. So we were buying it. Uh, yeah, it's about seven or eight percent down for win as well. Yes, uh, yeah, win LVS. We um, we were you know we kind of like them all here. I think when you see a move like that, um, you see uh, um, uh, you know you see basically panic with no real driver. That was the one. That's one of the opportunities that we like to we like to trade. So okay, again, what, what what would your top trade be at the moment, Ben? Uh, well, I'll, I don't know just yet. We are long the casino, so we'll see. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that is the top trade. We bought some um, we bought some Japanese gaming companies. Um, we bought some uh, some K Lab um, up in Japan, which is not the kind of name I, I think that's generally um, uh, that's generally discussed offshore. Um, but these are the kind of names that, that we like, Caleb 3656 uh, in Japan. Um, so, and this is proving to be pretty good so far. And um, you, you like this for Japan because you think that uh, gambling will be approved for Japan sometime in the next year? Oh, no, no, sorry. Well, on, on the gambling theme, um, you know, we, we're, going straight for, um, we're going straight for the Macau names in Hong Kong. Caleb okay. is actually uh, more, you know, social gaming, social media sort of site. So... Um, I bet that's unrelated, but in terms of what we're trading and, and, and as of right now making money on, that you know, Caleb's doing pretty well. Um, and again, these we're not talking so much about fundamental trades; it's more themes that we know the market's liked, um, stocks that have um, seen an awful lot of selling, an awful lot of volatility, and thereby you know a, a lot of panic. And we're trying to capture some uh, uh, some rebounds, but. It's stuff that we think people are happy to step into when they drop 30% off the top. So that's yeah. the kind of trading that we're doing. Again, it's very, very short term. Okay. Um, the uh, now structural, you know, structural long-term trades that we like in Japan. Let's say, uh, uh, let's talk about the casinos. You know, the potential, uh, the potential of casinos uh, in Japan, the casino bills. Um, you know, we still like things. We like uh, like cement plays, for example. Um, Tokoyama 4043, um, which services the right region. We think the Fukuoka region is going to uh, achieve a, or gain a light. Um, these guys provide cement there. So that's okay. the kind of way, you know, if you're looking at long-term structural stuff that we're happy to own, okay. 4043 is one of them. i um, got to go now, Ben, but thanks very much. Uh, always enjoy having you on the program. Uh, always good to be here, Brian. Yep, we'll see Have you next Friday. time. Yeah, Ben Collette there, head of Japan and Asian equities at Sunrise Brokers. Let's get back to some of the news because we wanted to tell you a little bit about what was happening with the ECB. Russia has massed troops along its border with Ukraine, and that has prompted the U.S. to say that there's a risk of an invasion. And the ECB president, Mario Draghi, picked up on that in his commentary. He said the risks are increasing. Well, there's no doubt that if you uh, look at the world today, and uh, you would see the geopolitical risks have increased uh, all over the world. We have the Russian-Ukrainian crisis, Iraq, Gaza, Syria, and Libya. We're still assessing what the possible likely impact of uh, sanctions might have on the euro area economy. Mario Draghi said that rates will stay low for a long time. We decided to keep the key ECB interest rates unchanged. 
The available information remains consistent with our assessment of a continued moderate and uneven recovery of the euro area economy with low rates of inflation and subdued monetary and credit dynamics. And once again, he has said that interest rates would stay low for an extended period. Looking ahead, we will maintain a high degree of monetary accommodation. Concerning our forward guidance, the key ECB interest rates will remain at present levels for an extended period of time in view of the current outlook for inflation. Moreover, the Governing Council is unanimous in its commitment to also using unconventional instruments within its mandate. Should it become necessary to further address risks of too prolonged a period of low inflation? Yeah, so that's Mario Draghi. He said that big asset purchases are an option for dealing with a severe economic shock, but he wasn't specific, and lots of, of uh, market watchers were wondering just exactly what he meant and perhaps when. Markets have weathered the Ukraine crisis up until now pretty well, but you never know what happens in the future. One reason that markets have been relatively sanguine thus far is if you take one of the guys at J.P. Morgan's private bank uh, put together an interesting analysis, compiled all the war-torn countries around the world, including Ukraine, Russia, uh, then you've got uh, the Middle East, Syria, Israel, and Gaza, and all that, you lump it all together, it amounts to 3% of global GDP, 2.6% of global trade, and 7 tenths of 1% of the world's global stock market cap. And so, so far, you can understand why. Now, this second level, though, uh, of increased sanctions by the U.S. and, and Europe is real. Uh, and and uh, I have to go to uh, Moscow in yeah. September. I have to go through a long process of making sure that none of the people that I'm going to meet are in any way affiliated with any of the companies that are named in these. It is real. It is real. That's J.P. Morgan's Andrew Goldberg. Well, the time is now 21 minutes after 8 o'clock, and this is Money for Nothing. How the markets are moving now. The dollar is trading at 102.10 Japanese yen. The euro slipping a little bit to a dollar 33. The pound slipping just a bit to 13 Hong Kong dollars and four cents. We say good morning now to Tim Huxley, Chief Executive Officer of Wokong Maritime Transport. Tim, thanks very much for coming into our studios. Pleasure. You know, we've seen a nice pickup in. Hong Kong and China shares of late, and uh, I've noticed that the shipping uh, shares, which have been down for quite a long time, really since the crisis, uh, have perked up just a little bit. Does that mean that the business is actually improving now? Well, on the bulk shipping side, uh, we are now halfway into the third quarter, and the second quarter was supposed to be when things were going to pick up, but it proved to be really disappointing. And you look at the key indicator, uh, the Baltic Dry Index, uh, which uh, hit its low point for the year in the middle of July at 723. It's now sort of nudged up a little bit to 765. So overall, on the bulk shipping side this year, I'd say so far has been quite a big disappointment. It's frustrating, I would think, because the U.S. economy really picked up in the second quarter. Um, it printed 4%, and some people say it'll end up being higher once it's revised. Uh, why didn't that um, follow through? And also, you see iron ore prices uh, seem to be uh, moving up quite significantly now. Shouldn't that be good for dry bulk shipping? Uh, well, not really, no. Um, the iron ore, iron ore is the... 
fundamental backbone of the of the bulk shipping industry. And what a lot of the, the expectation this year was based on uh, was the fact that with the lower iron ore price and an increased capacity coming on stream from Australia, and the Brazilians had also made considerable inroads in improving their capacity and lower prices, we expected that uh, a lot of that would undercut Chinese domestic capacity, and that would be sort of eased out of the market. Now then, that has happened to an extent. Uh, but what has happened is that, first of all, we still had an awful lot of ships available. But secondly, there's been big expansion and efficiencies in, um, in, port, in port loading and discharging, which has eased congestion. You don't have ships locked up and waiting to either load or discharge for a long time. And also, significantly, Brazil has... Um, not been as big an exporter as it has been previously. So what that's meant is that a lot of the iron ore that's moving is going from Australia to China, which is short haul. So that's shorter voyages, which means that the fleet isn't being utilized fully. So what I'm hearing from you is that um, even though we sort of think of some industries as, as going from overcapacity to undercapacity and then back to overcapacity, thus you see these big waves and everything, sounds like what you're saying is that even if growth comes back in Europe and the United States and you get more long haul, that um, because of the technology and because of the way that the ships have been changed, we may not see um, the business or particularly the stock prices of some of the leading shippers go back to their um, previous highs. Uh, I think that um, it's going to be quite a long haul in shipping, but you've got a lot of the major shipping companies, and in particular some of the listed ones, they've made big inroads in the efficiencies of their fleets. They've invested in more modern, more fuel-efficient ships, uh, and they will be reaping the benefit of those. But we also do anticipate the fourth quarter is traditionally stronger. The first quarter, you always have uh, weather-related delays. You have, obviously, Chinese few years he's a slowdown uh, but at the fourth quarter there is a re- pretty good reason for a degree of optimism on it but uh, after just because what, of the of the holiday season uh, well th- this is actually in the in, in moving raw materials I mean okay. the holiday season really in terms of moving goods in containers that's well underway now uh, and but in terms of um, the movement of, of raw materials fourth quarter is normally uh, a bit stronger. And certainly after this year, we, we need a strong fourth quarter. What's one of the biggest keys to seeing this business pick up? Is it Europe or is it the U.S. or is it just generally global growth? Uh, it's global growth because that's um, going to fuel imports around the world. But really, in, in terms of the bulk shipping industry, uh, tankers, bulk carriers in particular, uh, we are still very much dependent on sustained growth in China. And are we seeing, uh, from what you see from uh, from the uh, business flow, are we seeing China rebounding now? Um, that's what the numbers seem to suggest, the PMIs and, and industrial uh, profits. Uh, is that what you're seeing, or is it fairly lackluster? It hasn't quite filtered down into shipping rates yet, but uh, obviously continued growth in China is, is fundamental to, to the shipping industry. The shipping industry now, are so much of... Uh, the capacity in terms of building of ships is now focused on China. And that's been, and that's been one of the causes for the downturn. There was such an expansion of shipbuilding capacity uh, that and a lot of those shipyards, they were privately owned. They were very cheap uh, to order ships in. Quality was sometimes a bit questionable. But that flood of new ships out, that's actually been one of the... We've had this big hangover, really, since uh, just before the financial crisis when there was this raft of ordering. So we're working our way through that order book. So that was the overcapacity I spoke of. That was of. the overcapacity, yeah. And we're hoping now that uh, a lot of those shipyards, they have closed down. Um, we had one of our um, 
representatives go up and look at some of the shipyards who'd been chasing us, wanting us to order ships a few years ago. And some of those yards, they'd bricked up the entrance. So you think, well, wow. okay, that's capacity gone. For, uh, for overall productivity, can you retrofit old ships or do you have to buy new ones that are just technologically advanced? This is the big debate. Uh, people who have fleets of... Uh, modern ships uh, that are on the water, they say that you can retrofit. And certainly you can. You can make efficiencies. I mean, certainly on our fleet, uh, we've been able to achieve efficiencies in fuel consumption of about 12%. Often it's not by retrofitting things. Often it's just by being smarter at operating them, uh, maximizing your efficiencies, getting your crews to really understand that fuel efficiency is pivotal to the operation of the ship. But the new ships that are coming on, they are claimed to have up to 20% fuel savings. And that's quite a big bonus. What about other cost-cutting uh, jobs and these types of uh, ways, moving uh, some facilities to lower cost in terms of rents and, and space? Uh, is, is that kind of run its course or is there more um, that you can do? I think that uh, in shipping, shipping is actually quite a... Uh, an efficient business in terms of uh, the number of people that it employs. You can't cut down on the crews on ships anymore. Mm. That's really down to the bare bones as mm. it is, and anything further on that would probably be jeopardizing safety. Uh, but otherwise, in terms of moving back office functions to cheaper places, I think a lot of people have done that. But it's very important <clears throat> that you maintain a core of people in the major centers like Hong Kong. So Hong Kong, for instance, will continue to be a very important shipping centre because you need to have your focus here because you've got your bankers here, the lawyers, and all of the shipping infrastructure that you need. Is that why shipping uh, won't die in Hong Kong? Because if you look at some people looking over the long run, they think that um, since a lot of product is made in China, it should be shipped out of there, and Hong Kong will dwindle in time. You say that's not true? Uh, in terms of the actual amount of cargo that's handled in Hong Kong, yes, I think that that will dwindle. But then that was exactly the same with big port cities like London over the years. Hong Kong will remain uh, a major shipping centre uh, because we've got the people here, we've got the historic uh, family shipping businesses that existed here, plus the sort of new arrivals that have come in in the last 20 years, companies like Pacific Basin. Uh, so this is a great place to run a shipping business from. And what's more, you've got a very talented workforce here. Uh, the, and the government has actually supported that. You had the new maritime and aviation training scheme, which was the government supporting interns going into shipping companies. And our company, we've had four incredibly bright young university students in with us over this summer. So you're actually quite confident that you've got this continued flow through of talent coming into the business. And just to wrap up, since we're coming up to the news in 20 seconds or so, how do you feel? Are you optimistic about um, the global picture? From the shipping industry, I have been... Well, in you, you know, in a sense, you guys really see things being moved around. Your tell should be a great one. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's often said that uh, shipping is the great bellwether of the world economy because we're starting to move the raw materials before then the stuff is manufactured and then it appears in the shops. So we should actually be sort of ahead of the game. Uh, overall in shipping, I mean, I've been done 32 years in the shipping industry and I don't intend to leave it. Uh, it's, uh, it is a fascinating business. It is fundamentally so important. I mean, Brian, so far today, you've probably used about five ships yourself. <laughs> uh, you know, 90% of everything goes in ships. If shipping takes a day off, the world stops. 
It's great to see a guy talk about his business with a big smile on his face like you just did. You need to be uh, optimistic. Yeah, thanks very much, Tim. Uh, Tim Huxley, CEO of Wokwong Maritime Transport. Briefly leave you with the weather and the markets. The market's trickling lower, but not a broad sell-off, at least at this point. Hot conditions today, the maximum temperature, 32. Thirty-one. The news with Samantha Butler. With a three-day ceasefire between Israel and Hamas-led Palestinian militants in Gaza due to expire later today, there are signs that talks to extend the truce are proving difficult. A spokesman for the military wing of Hamas urged Palestinian negotiators to refuse to extend the truce unless Israel ends its blockade of Gaza. The BBC's Kevin Connolly reports. A spokesman for the military wing of Hamas, his face masked in a red and white checkered Palestinian scarf, appeared on an Arabic-language television channel to warn that the organisation is ready for what he called a long war. He urged Palestinian negotiators in Cairo to refuse to extend the ceasefire unless the group's long-term strategic demands were met, top of the list being the opening of Gaza Harbour to shipping. Israel is reportedly taking the warning seriously, and it's possible that the Hamas statement should be read straightforwardly as an indication that an extension of the ceasefire is now unlikely. But it is also possible that the tough talking is part of a negotiating strategy designed to extract the maximum concessions for any agreement to prolong the truce. The UN Security Council has condemned attacks in northern Iraq by the Islamic State and called on the international community to support the government in Baghdad. A statement issued following an emergency meeting of the council condemned the systematic persecution of minorities and those who refused to accept the extremist ideology of the Islamists. The British ambassador to the UN, Mark Lyle Grant, read out the Security Council's statement. The members of the Security Council condemn in the strongest terms the systematic persecution of individuals from minority populations and those who refuse the extremist ideology of ISIL and associated armed groups. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning to you. 8.33. This is Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Among our top stories this morning that we've been looking at, Russia promising more sanctions against the West. The ECB standing pat on interest rates. Hong Kong home prices hitting an all-time high. And in markets, it appears that the correction is upon us. Most of the equity markets around the world have been selling down. We'll get to more market coverage a bit later in this half hour. But we continue now with news flow and looking at the uh, top news stories in greater detail. A three-day ceasefire is ending soon in Gaza, but it's still uncertain what will happen when the fragile truce expires. Indirect talks are continuing in Egypt between Israel and the Palestinians. The aim is to extend the ceasefire indefinitely so the negotiations on achieving peace can take place. But as the BBC's Sally Nabil reports from Cairo, there's no sign of any breakthrough yet. 
Each party is sticking to its main position, Hamas refusing to lay down its weapons, Israel asking for the dismantling of the tunnel network and again for the demilitarization of the Gaza Strip, and the Egyptians, they are shuttling between this party and that one, trying to convince them to come to an in-between area before the truce ends. On the other hand, we had conflicting reports about extending the humanitarian truce. Israel accepted unconditionally, but what we understood from the Palestinian officials we have spoken to is that there is no agreement about the extension of the ceasefire in Gaza. The head of the U.S. Federal Public Health Agency says that the agency's at its highest level of alert over the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa. More than 930 people are thought to have died so far from the virus in countries such as Sierra Leone, Liberia, Guinea, and Nigeria. And now a Nigerian man suspected of having Ebola is being treated at a hospital in Benin. The CDC's director, Dr. Thomas Frieden, told Congress it's an unprecedented crisis. At the current trend, within another few weeks, there will have been more cases in this outbreak than in all previous recognized outbreaks of Ebola put together. I have activated the CDC Emergency Operations Center at level one for this outbreak. This is our highest level of response. It doesn't mean that there's an increased risk to Americans, but it does mean that we are taking an extensive effort to do everything we can to stop the outbreaks. Some of the world's top doctors have been meeting for the past two days to find new ways to control the outbreak. Later today, the World Health Organization is due to announce the result of those emergency deliberations. The BBC's Imogen Fuchs reports from Geneva. It's expected the World Health Organization will declare Ebola to be a global health emergency. That would give the WHO powers to order travel, even trade restrictions. It has been done before. Earlier this year, the WHO ordered mandatory polio vaccinations for anyone leaving Pakistan after a sharp rise in cases there. But since there's no vaccine for Ebola, and it takes up to three weeks for those infected to show symptoms, it's unclear how effective travel restrictions would be. That's why the WHO is sure to request much more support for affected countries, more doctors, more nurses and more medical equipment. There may be no cure for Ebola, but it can be stopped with traditional rigorous infection control measures. And even before the WHO announces its decisions, drastic measures are being taken. Liberia and Sierra Leone have declared states of emergency, with troops blockading major towns. Some airlines, including British Airways, have stopped flying to affected countries, Even when this outbreak is brought under control, the economic effects on some of the world's poorest countries will be felt for years to come. Imogen Fuchs reporting 22 minutes now before 9 o'clock. The NATO Secretary General Anders Fogh Rasmussen has accused Russia of continuing to destabilize Ukraine, and he promised Kiev the support of the alliance in the face of what he called aggression from Moscow. Speaking to reporters in Kiev, Mr. Rasmussen asked Russia to show it was serious about de-escalating the situation in the region. I urge Russia to follow the genuine path to peace, to stop its support for separatists, to pull back its troops from Ukraine's border, and to engage in a sincere dialogue 
for a peaceful solution. Well, Russia's various interventions in Ukraine have prompted the West to announce sanctions, uh, sanctions which Russia now is countering uh, with some of its own. And mostly it's been confined to food so far, but there are promises of more. The BBC's Steve Rosenberg visited a supermarket in Moscow to assess the impact. Well, in recent years, Russian consumers have got used to their supermarket shelves being full of imported food products. For example, in this supermarket, I can see British baked beans. They've got Lithuanian cheese, nectarines from Greece, tomatoes from Holland and Spanish bacon. But that's going to change because today the Russian government announced a ban on future imports of beef, pork and poultry, fruit and vegetables, fish cheese and dairy products from those countries which have imposed sanctions on Russia. That means from the European Union, the United States and Canada, and from Australia and Norway. The decision follows the latest round of EU sanctions last week that targeted entire sectors of the Russian economy. Now, the authorities here say they're confident that the supermarket shelves won't be left empty. They're already searching for alternative suppliers in other parts of the world, like South America, and encouraging domestic manufacturers to boost production. But filling the gap won't be easy. It's estimated that in big cities like Moscow, more than 60% of food in the shops is imported. Mind you, the shoppers I've been talking to here don't seem too worried. This is the right decision, he says. Russia should develop its own food industry instead of buying cheap imports from the West. If there'll be no Norwegian fish in the shops, he tells me, so what? And that's Steve Rosenberg uh, with that report. And, of course, what's been happening in Ukraine has affected markets. Uh, we see the Nikkei now down 175. That's 1.2% 1. at 15,057. Other Asian markets that are up and running are lower as well, with losses of about one quarter of 1%. Back to Mark Faber of the Gloom, Boom and Doom report. He sees the S&P 500 dropping sharply by the end of the year. I think between now and the year end, the market will drop something like another 10% or even 20%. I think we can have a big sell-off in the fall. We're seeing some selling now. For instance, markets in the West, uh, the DAX in Frankfurt are down more than 10%, so officially in correction mode, and U.S. stocks have been down. Mark Faber says it will be interesting to see what happens after this current bout of selling. We will have to wait now for a rebound. And the rebound will tell us whether the recent highs are highs for the year or whether we can make new highs. This is not known yet. All I can say, since the beginning of the year, the media in the U.S. and brokers and investment advisors have been so optimistic about stocks going up Yes, he says they've been so optimistic that it was time for a correction because the markets were just too overbought. The Dow down for the year now. The Hang Seng Index is up 4.7%. The Nikkei down 4% year to date. Gold trading at $1,310.90. So that's flat for the Asian markets uh, trade. And oil prices 105.67, a little bit of a pickup in Brent crude.
Well, from the beginning of the new year, some new rules will come into effect, which essentially will eliminate the front-loading commission for sales of investment-linked assurance schemes. The move is being welcomed by many, according to some advisors, who say that the tighter regulation will benefit consumers and end users. And we're joined in our studios now by Jessica Cutrera, Managing Director of EXS Capital. Jennifer, good morning. Jessica, Jessica, sorry. Good morning. Morning. Uh, Yeah. So this has been an area that a lot of people have complained about. They don't understand them. You go into the bank, you see the relationship manager, and they want to put you in these um, sort of um, insurance-linked savings schemes. Uh, You think that this move will be for the better? I think this is a fantastic move. I think this is good for consumers, and I think it's good for the industry. And, And what are the moves exactly? What are the sort of new regulations being put in place? The final details of how this is going to be implemented aren't completely clear, but what the new rules state that as of January 1st, these products with indemnity commission, where effectively the broker is paid all of the commission for the next 10, 20, 30 years, whatever the client is committed to, all that's paid up front, those products are no longer going to be uh, legal to sell in Hong Kong. And so if you don't have a big commission up front, presumably there is a lot less juice, um, you know, and a lot, lot more or a lot less twisting of arms to try to get customers in. Absolutely. What you have now, these products create a huge misalignment of interest. You know, when a, a client goes to a bank, they go to a financial advisor, there's a fiduciary responsibility there. And products like these have the potential to destroy that. They put the incentive on the salesperson to, to push the client into the highest possible contribution for the longest possible term. These plans aren't flexible. Often when we meet people, they've, they don't understand what they've bought. They've sort of maxed out what they could possibly put in, and something in their life changes, as it almost always does, and they need to make a change in their plan, and they can't, not without significant penalty, because their broker's already been paid this huge commission. The so, broker's already moved on to sell to the next person, and then they need, they need help. The, the broker isn't incentivized to continue to provide service and really the ongoing advice that financial products require. So the commission structure is being changed. What is it being changed to? Well, that isn't clear yet. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see what the, what the product providers come out with. The, the, the rules state how the commission has to be paid, and in theory you could use the same products and just change the way that the, the compensation is paid. But so many business models in Hong Kong, um, insurance brokers are based on the revenue from these front-loaded products. I'm not sure a lot of these firms can survive on a, on a normal drip-feed commission based on the, on the service they're getting. So it'll be, we'll have to see what the industry comes out with as an alternative. What sort of percentage of these products are being sold um, by smaller firms versus the big banks like HSBC, Standard Chartered, and uh, others? I see it pretty similar across the board. I meet people who've bought them from small firms. Um, I meet a lot of people who've bought them from HSBC and other big firms. Uh, the the misalignment of interest and the, the I think the the poor incentives to the selling broker are really the, the same across the board. Can, can you tell people, you know, in just a, a sort of nutshell, what these schemes are? Um, wh- what exactly they're they're meant to be saving schemes? Of course, they have a much higher yield, and uh, they're insurance linked. Um, so even if you take the commission, the big commission, out at the beginning, they're still complex to people. Can you explain it briefly? I, I can, and and I guess one thing I think that is important as we think about what the new products will look like is I think it's a good opportunity for the industry itself and for consumers to think about, should you even be mixing your investments in your insurance? 
right? Is there a reason to, to package it in this complex format that confuses people and that makes it hard for people to understand their investments and their investment returns? I, I would argue in most cases there isn't. But what these products do is in some type of life insurance wrapper, which in other jurisdictions has tax benefits. It really doesn't in Hong Kong, but they're they're still sold here. Um, it takes a an insurance product that someone puts a monthly contribution into, and inside of that insurance product, there's typically very little actual insurance bought. There, there is some, um, but then the rest of the, that monthly money that goes in is put into uh, a basket of mutual funds. Is this sort of a byproduct of these low interest rates? Um, the Fed, you know, having interest rates near zero, mostly around the world, you see the same sort of activity, and it causes this stretch or reach for yield. Is this all tied together? Uh, in this case, I really don't think so. These products have been around for, for decades now. Um, they, Ever since I started in the industry, they've been very popular, heavily sold. They, they're really a way for people to, to, to make investments um, in, in stocks, bonds, and cash, it is possible to have a plan that's very conservatively allocated. Um, you, you might see more people looking for alternatives to bank deposits, and therefore the bank or the financial advisor talks to them about equities and uses this product as a way to, to get into equities or high-yield debt or other alternative assets. Um, but, but these products have been around a long time, um, and that that juice in them for the the selling broker has has made them very popular on the sell side for a long time. And these changes, uh, where did they emanate from? Uh, these come from the insurance regulator, and and I think ultimately they've been driven by the the large number of complaints about these types of products, um, because the insurance the insurance industry in Hong Kong is governed by several different self regulatory agencies with without a lot of teeth, in my opinion. Um, there, there's been a struggle to deal with those complaints. Many of the people selling these products, despite the fact that they're what they're really selling clients, are stocks, hedge funds, mutual funds, underlying securities investments. You don't have to be licensed with the SFC to sell these products because they're insurance. And so consumers don't have a, a good outlet to complain when they run into problems or realize that they all of a sudden have put money aside for months and months and months, they need to stop the plan, they need to get out of the plan, and because their broker was paid so much commission, they literally get nothing back. Okay, just a final question about tax, because we, we said at the outset uh, when we were um, billboarding you or promoting you, we said that we talk a little bit about uh, FATCA and some of the changes. Uh, I just spent two Sundays, five hours each, going through all of my taxes. I'm, I'm an idiot to do my own, but I have been. Anyway, um, can, can you give us some insight into uh, the changes that we saw this year and whether or not uh, people can expect more audits? For, for U.S. citizens living overseas, I think you can definitely expect more audits. What, what you've seen broadly, and it's not just in Hong Kong but globally, is an increase in the information sharing. And as part of the rollout of FATCA in the U.S. and these tax information exchange agreements like the one Hong Kong signed with the U.S. back in March, the, the world of secrecy is dying, right? The concept of having your money in Singapore or Switzerland or someplace that nobody can see and nobody's going to find out about, um, those days are over. But for the moment, the government uh, has signed that. But um, does that mean that the banks themselves individually, banks like Hang Seng Bank and HSBC, that they will just open up their books to the, to the IRS? I think it's not clear yet under the, the tax information exchange agreement. W what is clear under FATCA and what 
these I can't speak for the banks, but what I what I know these offshore insurance companies, these groups that are selling these um, these products we discussed earlier, they've all indicated that they will comply and they will release data to the U.S. And that that creates a real problem for U.S. citizens because one thing I see when people buy these offshore life insurance products is they're often told by the broker, not only is it a good idea to commit X amount for many months. Um, but you don't have to report that to the IRS, and that's not true at all. Those plans are reportable on an annual basis, even if you take nothing out of them. And one other quick note is they forced um, some reporting of, of uh, bank accounts and, um, and um, you know, accounts that you hold signature uh, approval over. It's all online now instead of just um, filling out a form and, and sending it in to the Treasury. Um, has, that, has that been difficult for people? Uh, I I think some people are intimidated by it, um, particularly because you no longer have a choice. They won't accept paper forms. You do have to do the online submission. We've helped a number of clients with it. It's it's actually very easy. Um, the form itself allows you to validate it, and it won't let you submit it if you haven't filled in all the blanks, which is handy. Mm. A little bit of self-checking. Um, so okay. it's fairly straightforward, but you do you do have to sit down in front of a computer and spend some time and get it done. Since I'm about to do it, how many hours would it take me? <laughs> I haven't had anybody take more than an hour. And, okay. And the hour was somebody with a lot of signatures. So. <laughs> okay. Eureka. Hooray. All right, Jessica, thanks very much. Uh, and uh, we'll definitely have you back. Thanks for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Jessica Cutrera, Managing Director of EXS Capital. <laughs> Good morning and thanks for joining us. Uh, continuing with news coverage this morning, the prominent mainland human rights lawyer Gao Zhisheng has been released from prison. His detention three years ago prompted an international outcry. Mr. Gao says that he was tortured while in jail. Billy Clark has the story. Mr. Gao, who defended some of China's most vulnerable people, including Christians and coal miners, have been held largely incommunicado by authorities since 2009. A relative said he was out of prison but had not yet returned home. It is unclear whether Mr. Gao, 50, will still be subject to some form of house arrest as he has been previously. His wife, Gung He, who now lives in the United States, said she had spoken to him following his release but was worried that he had been tortured in jail. Mr. Gao was arrested in early 2009. He was accused of inciting subversion. He was released briefly in 2010 but claimed he was tortured while in detention. Shortly after that, he disappeared again. State media subsequently said in 2011 he would be jailed for three years for violating probation rules. The decision was criticized by the United Nations, United States and the European Union, which repeatedly called for his release. And the time is coming up to seven minutes before nine o'clock. You're listening to Money for Nothing here in our expanded program of one hour while Backchat takes its summer break. Let's say good morning to Danny Hicks, editor at Sports Direct for AFP. Morning, Danny, Bob. good morning. Yes. Morning. So today it was interesting to to look at the high cost of of starting out in Formula One. Yeah, a, a story caught my eye earlier this week in in the Post uh, about a Hong Kong driver, Adley Fong. He's an up and coming driver. He's uh, had good results in things like the Macau Grand Prix. He was the first Hong Kong driver to uh, get a top 10 there a couple of years ago for, for many, many years. And uh, he's been kind of around the lower formulas. And he's been told um, he, he could get a reserve seat in Formula One with the Mauritius team. All sounds fantastic until you find out that uh, 
he has to find three million euros, uh, around four million dollars or thirty-one million Hong Kong dollars, uh, to actually secure that seat. That's an extraordinary amount of money to come up with at the beginning. Uh, have others had to go through it? Yeah, unfortunately, this is becoming the model in Formula One. Apart from probably the, the top four teams, McLaren, Red Bull, Mercedes and Ferrari, who are, you know, are works-based and, and, uh, and have big auto manufacturers behind them. Uh, and Red Bull, of course, a huge, uh, a huge company in its own right. Apart from those teams, uh, the sort of the pay driver, where a driver pays for his seat, is becoming the model in Formula One. And we've seen in, in the past few years, uh, drivers who couldn't bring the sponsorship money into the teams uh, have dropped out of the sport. So good drivers such as Timo Glock, uh, Heike Kovalainen and, and others uh, have recently dropped out of Formula 1 cause, simply because they cannot bring the sponsorship or the funding with them uh, that the team requires. How does that sort of entry level compare with other sports? Well, exactly. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're a talented footballer um, and you kick a ball about and you play for a local team and it costs you virtually nothing you get spotted by talent spotters and and you move up the ladder and uh, clubs are interested and you will pay for your development in motorsport it's completely the other way around you pay for your own development you know if you start out in a cadet series when you're eight or nine years old it's going to cost about 10 grand a year uh uh UK uh, sterling, uh, fifteen thousand, uh, fifteen, fifteen thousand uh, US dollars to to get you started. Now you might have a parent who can afford to pay for that, but once you start uh, looking further on, a karting season where the likes of you know Sebastian Vettel and Lewis Hamilton came through karting, a lot of the Formula One drivers come through karting. You're looking at a hundred grand a year US dollars to to uh, to actually fund a season in karting. Now if you can. Uh, be spotted by companies who, who fancy you and, and will sponsor you and will put up that sort of money, then that's a route in. But it, it's very, very difficult. And I think the problem for the sport is that the most talented drivers are not always the ones who are getting to the top. And, uh, you know, there could be some talent out there that's going astray simply because they can't get the backing. Imagine if you qualified for one of the PGA tours uh, in golf uh, or even the tennis circuit, uh, you'd probably have to set aside at least 100000 to mm. compete because you have to travel and you've got to stay in hotels and there are various locales. Uh, but 100000 is a far cry from the roughly 400000 that $3 million Hong Kong dollars translates Yeah, and of to. course, if you're good enough in golf and you get even on, even on the sort of challenge tours and the, and the ones below the main tours, there's money to be earned there, the prize money. You know, you can pick up uh, $10,000 for winning a tournament on even one of the lesser tours, and, and that can go a long way to funding your travel, as you say, paying for a caddy, your, your accommodation, and all the rest of it as you, as you go on these tours. So if you're good enough, you can earn the money. That then will bring in sponsors who are interested in you, in you and will provide you with equipment and, and the like, and, and you can move up the ladder. But in Formula One, it's, it's, you know, it's almost like the carts uh, pushing the horse here, and unless you've got the money. You know, Pastor Maldonado, who's a, who's a driver who you know, has a bit of a record for doing some reckless things on the track this season, he's in Formula One because he's got the Venezuelan National Oil Company behind him, and he brings in 30 million quid a year to his team. Arguably, he might not be good enough to get a drive um, just on pure talent, but the money he brings in is so valuable to these lesser teams, such as Mauricio and Caterham, who, who are struggling and, and have been open about the fact that they, the pay driver is their model, their business model. They need drivers to bring money and sponsorship and commercial backing with them, otherwise they can't afford to run the team. And it's a sad fact of life. It sounds like what you're saying is that we'll definitely see a stifling of the emergence of new talent. Well, I think it's going that way. And of course, over the past 
last you know six years since the since the global financial meltdown companies have looked and at their uh, at their sponsorship budgets and and have uh, and have tightened up on these sort of things and whereas you know Whereas uh, drivers in the parks could maybe pick up a tyre company or, or an oil company or whatever and get a bit here and a bit there and a bit there and couple it all together and have loads of logos over their driver's overalls and, and get in a car, uh, it's not so, so much the case now. But it's a shame for this lad if he can't get the opportunity because he's undoubtedly got potential, otherwise he wouldn't be offered a C. I mean, it's not a question of they just pick anyone and, and say come up with the money and you've got to be able to drive and there's never been a Chinese or, or a Hong Kong driver in Formula One and uh, so you know maybe <laughs> uh, there's companies out there in Hong Kong who uh, are not exactly strapped for cash at the moment who could get behind this lad and maybe uh, stump up some money and help him along the ladder he needs 800,000 euros by December to, uh, to for his first sort of down payment to try and get a reserve seat in 2015. That's not a guarantee he'll actually take part in a Formula One Grand Prix but it's the first step and uh, you know, you know, maybe someone out there listening to this show even uh, <laughs> might be might be prepared to uh, write out a check. Okay, no no endorsements here, but no. uh, just putting the information out there. Danny, not thank mentioning you. any names there, Brian. Yeah, but. thanks, Danny. Uh, Danny Hicks, editor, sports direct, AFP, and a regular contributor to this program, Money for Nothing. We'll leave you with how the markets are acting up or down today. The Nikkei down one ninety seven. The ASX two hundred in Australia off twenty one points, and in Seoul, the Kospi is down about seven points. So these are the losses between a third of a percent and one and a third percent. Gold. 1309 Brent crude $105.67 sunshine today some showers isolated thunderstorms 32 as the maximum the outlook showers and a few thunderstorms over the weekend and into next week thanks for joining us morning brew coming up with the irrepressible Phil Whelan in just a few minutes the news at nine o'clock we'll see you again next week 